This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. It's Wednesday, September 2nd. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. Today's interview with John Tezzer has been a long time coming, and today's finally the day. John will be here in just a few minutes and invites you to join us for the ride as we look back on his illustrious franchise career, the current COVID-19 updates and analysis that he publishes daily on Facebook, and to take a look ahead to the latest chapter in his life as the newly minted president and chief development officer at the iconic Hand in Stone. But first, my thanks to last week's guest, Dave Pazgan, founder of Zorforum, the only mastermind-type group dedicated specifically to franchising. Dave really got my attention talking about his previous successes as the fuel behind the growth of 101 Mobility, the power of his own personal experience as part of a franchisor-only peer group, and the resultant birth of Zorforum and the depth of opportunity it offers, especially to emerging franchisors. If you've not listened to this episode yet, head to your podcast library and check it out ASAP. And thanks again, Dave Pazgan. Shifting gears, I want to take a moment to talk about a project that I was recently invited to become associated with. About a month or so ago, I was contacted by a gentleman named Peter Daly Dixon from the UK. Peter's a software developer and Franchise Today listener and was writing to tell me about a project that he and another gentleman named Andrew Priestley were undertaking, which at the time seemed very ambitious given that this project involved putting a book together called Franchising Freedom on an even more more ambitious, if not aggressive, timeline of one month. So the reason he contacted me was that he and Andrew were putting out a call for authors, franchising professionals who would become chapter contributors to the book. Again, this was at the end of July, submissions would be due in mid-August, and the book would go live in its Kindle version in early September. I passed for a couple of reasons, not the least of which were the constraints of time, but there was something about Peter that I admired and liked. I offered to remain a resource for him and invited him to ping me back if there was ever anything I could do to assist him along the way. Well, barely a month later, 15 contributors from around the globe have made their submissions from franchisors and franchise attorneys to franchisors franchise consultants, coaches, and brokers. All 15 added a piece to the puzzle, and Franchising Freedom is now number one in category on Amazon in both the UK and right here at home in pre-release, and yours truly was given the esteemed privilege of writing the forward. Personally, I think Peter may have missed his calling. As one who was so able to clearly identify and then articulate his vision to prospective contributors around the world, and so quickly draw favorable responses from 15 contributors on three continents, and in no time flat, execute his vision so quickly and efficiently. Peter himself might well have made an excellent franchisor. The book, again, is called Franchising Freedom. I dub it as being a practical guide to sensible franchising. It's available on Amazon in pre-release for just 99 cents, but only for a couple more days. Then it bumps up to 4.99, but it will be worth every penny. So go order yourself a copy, give it a read, and then come back next week when Peter will join me right here to talk more about the book. A quick break here, and we're back in two minutes or less with John Tezza. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, Stan Friedman here with a word about Transitive, an amazing marketing platform that actually delivers what others can only imagine, accurate, 
dependable results that are second to none. All right, without getting too deep into the weeds, Transitive connects franchisees' customer data from all sources, providing high-octane fuel for their marketing engines. They then deploy machine learning. Yes, artificial intelligence, which identifies various customer traits and habits, attributes that would otherwise likely go unnoticed, and it segments these customers into groups. This is important because, as we know, not all customers provide your franchisees with equal dollar value. But wouldn't it be great if they could easily identify who's who? Well, that's exactly what Transitive does. And what's more, it then accurately drives the appropriate offers to each of those customer groups, delivering specific personalized messages to each of the group's customers. Just like that, your franchisees are engaged in laser-focused target marketing, delivering them much more bang for the buck. You've got to see it to believe it. So what are you waiting for? Order up a demo today and tell them I sent you. Find them online at www.transitive.io. That's www.transitive.io. John Teza has served in senior executive management roles for several national restaurant companies, including Corner Bakery, Jersey Mike's, and Quiznos. Over the course of his career, John led several significant brand expansion campaigns and also served in senior-level capacities in marketing, ops, IT, legal, and training. During John's tenure, Jersey Mike's was named the fastest-growing restaurant company by Nation's Restaurant News for three straight years. John's also the founder of Janus Brands, a consulting firm he started in 2009 with a focus on multi-unit growth, development strategy, and small business enterprise business planning. John is an active member of the restaurant leadership and franchising communities. He serves as a trustee on the IFA's foundation board and is a member of the board of the National Restaurant Association. He also serves on the board of Franchise Updates Leadership and Development Conference. John's career in franchising began right out of college when he graduated with a business degree from William & Mary in 1997. John Tezza, welcome to Franchise Today. Thank you, Stan. Very, very happy to be here. Well, and I'm happy, too, that we took this long to get it done because, my friend, oh, boy, do we have more things to talk about, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we sure do. Don, I'm going to do what I always do and ask you to take us back to where and when franchising found you. But before I do that, I'm going to pop two questions to you. July 21st, 2010. Any significance? July 21st, 2010. Um, It doesn't ring a bell. I I know that I had left Quiznos. It was before I started with Jersey Mike's. Uh, So something in that window. So July 21st, 2010 is when you and I became Facebook friends. (laughs) And that was preceded by you and me attending some kind of a function at Benetrends in Philadelphia. And it was there that Jerry Darnell made the introduction of John Tezza and Stan Friedman, who to that day had never known each other. I do absolutely remember that day. It was uh, it was at Benetrend's office. Uh, I do absolutely remember that. And I found it strangely ironic, as we're going to talk about as you bring us up to speed on your franchising career, that you and I were both in the sandwich business at the same time, and it took Jerry Darnell to get us together. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jerry. <laughs> All right. So let's wind it back. Take us back to the beginning of your career in franchising. What was the inflection point that got you and in franchising together? Yeah. So ironically, it, I don't know that it was 
as much of an inflection point. It really was the start of my career. I joined Quiznos about 90 days after I graduated from William & Mary. So I have effectively been in franchising since uh, the day I started working as a professional. And what was it about franchising that lit the torch for you? What made you know this was your life? So it's interesting. At the time, I would say I wasn't even aware that I was quote unquote in franchising. I have sort of a bifurcation for me about maybe 10 years into my career where, you know, up until that point, I was a restaurant guy and I was, you know, it really wasn't even about restaurants. It was about that one particular company. It was a fairly insular company. We didn't do a lot of outside networking. And it wasn't until I remember literally to the place I went to my first franchise development conference, Gary and Teresa's event in Atlanta. And that was the first time that I really understood that there was this sort of industry called franchising that existed sort of separate and apart from the brands themselves. So I've been involved in franchise companies really since the the beginning of my professional career. I'd say that first franchise leadership and development conference is where I sort of became a member of the franchise community. And what role were you playing at that company there that you began at without realizing what you were doing? So I think at that point, I was the EVP of development. I started at Quiznos in an entry-level operations role and uh, was with that company for a long period of time and took on a lot of different roles through the course of my career there. But I think it was the EVP of development. And I can't tell you that I even know how that conference got on my radar screen, but I can tell you that it was at that point in my career where I felt like maybe it was time to start understanding the broader landscape. And I found my way to that conference, which I'm on the board today. Gary and Therese have been great friends and mentors. And it's, I suppose, not ironic that that was the first event that I attended in kind of in the franchise landscape. And so from there forward, as we work our way to the current day and this big news that you're going to share with the audience here, what came from that conference? What was the eye opener? And now you're exposed to an industry beyond the one company that you're working for. What did that do to to your line of sight? What did it do to the way you became part of a larger community? Where did it go? How did you put those pieces together and, and then tell us where it took you? Yeah, you know, I think the first realization was that there were a whole lot of other people out there doing the, the same or similar things to what I was doing day by day. And that there were a whole lot of really, really smart people that I could learn from and that there was this sort of collegial opportunity to be part of something separate and apart from my primary vocation. And I think that's really carried through the majority of what I've done in my career. It was the first time I saw that there was an opportunity for Mindshare. It was the first time that I saw that there are people doing very, very similar things to what I was doing, but that my gosh, they were doing them better, right? And so I think that was a, it was a fairly important inflection point for me. And you had a 12 year or so run with Quiznos. What are the roles and hats to do with her? I was exposed to just about every aspect of the franchise operating model and that organization started in operations, ran company units, moved into development fairly quickly. I experienced the entire development cycle. I was involved in field marketing and field training. At one point, ran about an 800 unit region as uh, the region president, moved back into Denver with our headquarters and oversaw a very tightly defined but uh, highly functional team around. We built an in-house architecture firm. I ran non-traditional for that company. So I really was exposed to just about every aspect of the business. And then about 12 years later, you said enough of this Western U.S. Quiznos. Yeah. I'm sticking with sandwiches, but I'm going to go to Jersey Mike's and do it there. Yeah. 
It actually, it didn't happen quite that way. So I had a, at that point in my career, I had, I had been there for 12 years and my career there, my experience there had kind of run its course. We were going through a pretty big restructuring in the company and my wife and I, who my wife is from New Jersey as well, if you know that we moved to Colorado with two kids. We had our little guy out there and we made the decision that we wanted to get back to the East coast. We had still have a ton of family in the area that, that we settled back in, which is not too far from where we grew up. And we wanted our kids to grow up around their cousins and we wanted to grow up around our support network. And amidst this restructuring, I had the opportunity to actually leave the company and consult back with them for a period of time. And that's where Janice Brands was born. So we moved back to the East Coast and I started working back with the company. And pretty quickly, it was it was apparent that that race had been run. So I decided to leave and was going to build Janice as sort of the next phase. Some partners and I obtained the rights to a startup franchise company out of South Florida, that we were going to be the area reps for a couple markets and, and build a bunch of restaurants. And that was it. I started Janice Brands and started down that path. As the story goes, went to the gym to blow off some steam the day that I signed my separation docs and ran into Peter Cancro, literally coming out of the gym, out of the Atlantic Club in, in Wall, New Jersey. You know Peter, right? Everybody yeah. knows Peter. Incredible tour de force. And you know, Peter and I had known each other. We had a prior relationship, just a social relationship, really just two guys in the subcategory that were living in the same area. And, you know, months later, I met with him. I met Hoyt as a mentor to this day. And then over the course of the next couple of months, we talked, I needed to be out of that business for a little while. But after a period of time, it became apparent that there was a sort of a mutual desire to work together, that it was an opportunity for me to, to help them out a little bit. And so I joined the company. And you had a pretty good run. I know that a guy we both love named Brian Summers loved the opportunity to work with you and learn from you and that you shared an awful lot of intellectual capital with that young man. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Brian's a super guy. I'm one of the best. Like Jersey Mike's was in a great place. Hoyt had joined the company three years earlier. I mean, the foundation of that organization was fantastic, right? Peter had been at it for a long time with some really, really good people around him. Great franchisees, a great internal staff, guys that had been with him, Mike Manzo and John Hughes and Rich Hope had been around him for a long time. Hoyt joined the company in 2008 and brought a, just a different level of operating acumen and began to attract a specific type of operator. By the time I got there in 2011, they were ready to launch. I mean, they were already a, certainly a super regional brand. I think 400 restaurants and change and you know, be a hundred in, in the pipeline at the time, they were already well on their way to beginning to scale. And quite honestly, it was a, it was just a marriage, a, a good marriage, right? I mean, I, it was an opportunity for me to apply a lot of what I had learned in a prior life to an organization and apply all the positive and, you know, maybe eliminate some of the things that weren't necessarily so positive. And it was, it was a great five-year period. There's no doubt about it. We built a lot of restaurants. More importantly, we, um, averaging the volume in that system went up significantly during that period. So franchisees were doing well. There was a tremendous amount of organic internal demand for growth. And at the same time, there was a tremendous amount of external organic demand. So, I mean, you know, I got to oversee the entire development platform. There were great people through each of the respective disciplines. Brian was certainly one of them. And it was fun. It was certainly a great run. And so when you decided to leave, you made a quick move from Jersey Mike's to Corner Bakery. Is that right? I did. Yep. And that was not planned to be anything more than a short run. I think you went there for a specific assignment, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to work with Frank Pacey. I wanted to work with Rourke. 
Steve Romanello is a good friend and remains a, a counselor to this day. It was uh, Cornerbaker is a phenomenal organization, and it was an 18 month sprint. I was commuting to Dallas with my old my son, a freshman in college, was just a freshman in high school. It was a tough slog for us personally. You know, I, it was an organization I loved being a part of. The logistics of it were pretty were pretty difficult. And that brings us to a really big turn on your career path that we want to talk about before we go to break. You made a turn that got you out of the day-to-day operations, and you did that as a partner with NRD. Yeah, that's right. So I joined NRD. Aziz and Susan brought me on in August of 2017, and it was definitely a big pivot after 20 years, close to 20 years on the operational side of franchise businesses. It was an opportunity to really approach that business from a completely different viewpoint. And I am so thankful to Aziz and Susan for giving me the shot to do that and trusting me with some oversight on our portfolio companies. They also gave me the opportunity to build our technology platform, which was a really big pivot for me. I had always been involved, sometimes directly, but more often than not, indirectly with the technology platforms and the organizations that I'd been in. And I'd always been very, very interested in how organizations could mine data and use that data to predict future performance. But at NRD, I had an opportunity to really put those two things together and begin investing in, in we built a portfolio of investments in technology platforms that were designed to really optimize or create efficiencies at the unit level for restaurants and franchise companies. And it was a really big pivot for me and was just, I'm just so thankful to Aziz and Susan for giving me the opportunity. But I think you made a discovery. I think the NRD stage of your career brought you to a place that I've, that I've experienced myself at one point in my career when I became a supplier and had spent no matter how many years with how many brands doing what I did in development or in franchise relationship management, but I was always heads down inside of a single house. And I think your whole career up to NRD, you pretty much were in the same kind of a parallel. You were heads down in a particular house doing what it is you did. When I became a supplier, I all of a sudden found myself in a heads up environment. And instead of being deeply ensconced day to day into the business of a single brand, I was now looking horizontally across many brands, seeing many franchise companies, having conversations with people across market sectors and companies by the dozens, sometimes in the course of a few weeks or a month. And it's a totally different experience. And there's an adjustment that comes with that experience. And I think that's something that you experienced as well, which is bringing us up to the drum roll of where it is you are now and why you went there. (laughs) (laughs) So wanted to share that with us. And then we're going to go to a quick break and come back and talk a lot about this COVID thing you've been doing on Facebook, which has had me riveted to you for weeks. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. The the announcement that Stan's referring to was a little earlier this month. It's been a little over two weeks now. I joined Hand in Stone as the President and Chief Development Officer. And so this brings you back to a place where I think this is driven by the conversations that we had in the green room about you just need to get your hands muddy and dirty again, right? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a big part of it as an operator and for a long period of time, you're close to the work, right? I mean, you're, you live and die day by day by being close to the work. And I did want to get back to that I, I felt like being on the operating side of the business was where I belonged. It was my calling. That was a big part of it. I think the, the much bigger part of it was the opportunity at hand in stone. This is a this is an organization that is incredibly well built. It's incredibly well positioned, and I just I couldn't be more excited to be here. Well, this is all great news, and I'm happy to share and maybe even break some of it here on franchise today, John. And I know that you're going to be a huge asset to the hand and stone team, as you have been to everybody's organizations that you've been a part of until now. Why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we're going to talk about his analysis of COVID-19 coronavirus and his almost daily updates on Facebook, which have been fascinating to follow. We'll be right back. 
Franchise Today. We'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle, providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online, and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice, dice, and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball, but there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself. It's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. And we're back with John Tezza, newly minted president and chief development officer at Hand and Stone Massage and Facial Spas. John, you've spent the last two or three years looking at companies on behalf of NRD. What is it you see on the horizon? Has COVID been a huge influencer in some changes in our lives that are permanent? Well, yeah, I mean, look, it's pretty clear that COVID has been a disruptor of all sorts for really any business, consumer businesses in particular. In some cases, that's been a very positive disruptor force and others it's been an incredibly negative disruptive force i think that's that's universal the degree of disruption has sort of ebbed and flowed along the lines of the severity of the particular outbreak and along the lines of the severity of the measures that are taken at the jurisdictional level be that state or local to try to minimize the spread i said early on pretty broadly that the impact of this was going to be asymmetrical and that the response to it needed to be equally as asymmetrical in the earliest days of that, the initial outbreaks were really limited to the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic and really Michigan at that time. And then, you know, as it spread into Illinois and then really waned, you saw sort of an asymmetric response. You saw states reopening at different time frames. You saw different businesses, different business modalities within each state that were affected asymmetrically as some businesses were allowed to reopen and others were not, or others were only allowed to reopen with sort of limited functionality. And then you watched it again almost happened in reverse as the southern and the western outbreak happened through the summer and as the impact in the northeast and mid-atlantic states began to wane so i think you've got this and you know i think I, I may have wrote about it at one point earlier you know you've got this sort of very amorphous response that's necessitated by a, a very disconnected stimulus, asymmetric impact across states. You got asymmetric impact across different businesses and across modalities within individual businesses. And then you've got sort of jurisdictional biases around, you know, not to get into the political side of it, but there does appear to be some influence in how different areas are able to re-engage from a business standpoint based 
on political affiliation of the people that are involved running that jurisdiction. So, you know, put all that together, it's a great big mess. And I think that's what small business owners in particular are feeling over the course of the last, call it six to seven months. Where that goes from here, I think is anybody's guess. The numbers, and I think we'll get into that in a second, but the numbers uh, certainly indicate that they're, we're moving in the right direction, generally speaking. No idea what future stimulus has, whether there's a second wave associated with the oncoming flu season or, you know, as people move back inside in the in the northern states as uh, you know with the onset of fall it's pretty clear in the in the current numbers that things are improving how long that lasts and whether or not even an improvement in the numbers can overcome sort of some of the general societal bias around what's acceptable and what's not. Who knows? I can't really predict it. What do you see the permanence of impact on franchising looking like? I think there are certain things that like curbside service pickup, things like that. I don't see those ever going away. Do you? No. Limited service modalities are within every consumer vertical are here to stay. We've been moving towards a technology-enabled automation and augmentation for quite a while. And I've, all this period has done is exacerbate that. At Hand and Stone today, you can book a massage online and not interact with anybody until you get on the massage table. Same thing within our skincare line. And do I think that's going to go away? No, I don't. I don't think that's going to go away. Do I think that the need state around having food delivered for a limited service occasion is going to go away? No, I don't in any way, shape, or form. I think if you look at the history of the last couple of years in, in the restaurant industry in particular, but I think this is true across most consumer verticals, most of the ordering channels have been replaced by some sort of digital order channel. That's certainly not universally true, but if you looked at it on a trended basis, that is absolutely true. And do I think that's going to stop in a post-COVID world? No, I don't. And I've seen companies like Wingstop that were built for this time, I I think Wingstop's business model, just using them as an example, food to be consumed off-premise, had 90% of the things necessary already in place. They had a tremendous leg up. I don't know what the number is today, but I know they've been comping positive double digits since the beginning of March on all of this and probably growing from there. Where do you see franchise development and concepts that pre-COVID may have been doing extremely well and may have been on a trajectory for ongoing continued growth? But I'm asking you about companies that may be in the fitness space in the child care space, there are going to have to be major adjustments to those business models in my mind. And I'm curious about yours. Yeah, it's a good question, Stan. And I think I think a lot of those adjustments have already happened, right? So for example, I'm talking about hand and stone, right? Our consumer experiences have changed significantly, right? So PPE is a big part of the consumer experience and making sure that you know the consumer actually sees the massage therapist wash their hands prior to every service, right? That didn't exist prior, right? They were, they were, of course they were washing their hands right. before, every, before every service, but now they're doing it in room. And Hand and Stone was fortunate enough that they had the foresight to put water in every one of their treatment rooms. And now they, you know, the optics of it matter. The optics of cleaning every table in between services matters. And I think that's, so that's true across really every consumer experience. So whether it's home health care or whether it's childcare or whether it's fitness, all of those experiences are going to have to evolve to include both an actual movement towards limited group interaction or limited close personal interaction and the optics side of it, right? It's not enough just to alter your process flow to mitigate the risk of 
transmission in an immediate post-COVID world, you also have to show the guests that that's the case. It's the building of trust. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the things we heard early, if you go all the way back to the beginning of COVID, you know, when this, the world started burning, you heard that this was going to negatively affect big brands. And I think unequivocally, this positively affects brands, right? Because consumers want to continue to interact with, they want to continue to experience and to support brands that they trust. Our worlds run on small business, right? And whether that's small business associated with a brand or a small business associated with an independent operator, at the end of the day, our worlds run, our respective worlds run on small business. That said, right, brands and in particular franchise brands that have a consistent set of standards that get executed across a wide array of units and teams that are in place to not only enforce those standards, but to evolve those standards when they need to, they're well positioned to deal with the reality of, of evolving their, all of their primary modalities to meet this post-COVID world. And I think you're seeing that everywhere you go. I mean, I, I've not been in a gym. I live in New Jersey. Gyms are still not open, but certainly I can see it in my experiences with Hammond Stone. Right? I see how they've evolved the consumer experience and quite honestly, I think heightened the consumer experience. Right. Given the reality of a post-COVID world, I think we've heightened the consumer experience. And I think every business vertical is going to have to deal with it. Interesting stuff. So, John, take us back to February, March. When was it that you started doing the <laughs> daily report? <laughs> you know, so right at the beginning. I think it was, if, if I went into my computer, I could look. I, I want to say it was March 15th. It may have been a couple of days later, and I backdated. I went back and got the data prior to March 15th. But yeah, I've, uh, with the exception of one, one day, which I went back and got, I've collected the data now on you know, daily transmissions uh, or you know daily positive cases, hospitalizations, current hospitalizations, deaths on a national and on a uh, statewide basis. These reports haven't been as entertaining as your <laughs> stories from airports <laughs> about particular <laughs> legs of particular journeys. But John, is, uh, get, you know, you're an analyst and this stuff is being sliced and diced politically. It's being sliced and diced medically. It's almost like politics. It depends on which side of which view you want to see. Numbers can be made to tell you all kinds of stories. But I look at what you've been doing with a level of trust in that I don't think I understand all that you've reported, but I believe just like the optics that you've been talking about with franchise brands having to do things to help their consumer base feel trust is worth. I feel that way about you and the time and the energy you've put into all of this. Put it to the audience in plain English. What can they do with this information? Well, so I'll give you a big disclaimer. That is, I hope that if you're interested in getting really good, insightful information, that you don't rely completely on, on my analysis, right? I hope for anybody that's interested in getting good, solid information that they find somebody far smarter than me. It's your a... opinion that I asked for. I didn't, <laughs> ask, I didn't ask you for a, a doctor's diagnosis. The other disclaimer I'll make is that while I've worked hard to make this an objective analysis and to report out in a way that I think is objective. I've had a couple of friends tell me like, you're not as objective as you think you are. You're showing some biases. So <laughs> those are my two disclaimers. And I guess I'll start by saying like, you know, the genesis of this is I'm a dad first. I'm a dad and a son before I'm anything. And you know, I've got a 70, 77 year old father who's a walking comorbidity. And he and my mom live in Florida and my in-laws, Laura's parents live just on the other side of town from us. And, you know, so my initial interest in this was really around the, the, the health crisis. I've got three kids. I, this was going to be a big spring for them. My oldest was a senior in high school, getting ready to have a breakout baseball season. My daughter, who's in musical theater, had a couple of big shows that she was going to be in this spring. My little guy is a 12U baseball player. If you know anything about baseball, you know the 12U is a magical season. It's the last time they're on the little field. They go to all these big tournaments. And obviously with an eye on the, the actual healthcare crisis and the fact that literally people were dying, I, I was also very concerned about 
what it meant for my family and my role as a dad and a son and husband and all that in the short run. And so I needed to understand where the data was. And I needed to understand the juxtaposition between the data and the narrative because in the earliest days, and we were in New Jersey, obviously being incredibly negatively impacted by it. And beyond my role as a dad, my role in the fund and the portfolio companies and all of the investments that people had made into it, I just needed to understand the reality between the data and the narrative. And so that's where it really started. So I've tried kind of tracked it up and I tracked it down. And for me, it was, there was strength in understanding what was actually happening. I got lost in it sometimes. I mean, it's easy to get lost in that data. At one point I was tracking daily new cases and deaths by county and was publishing that data out. And so just got too far down in the weeds on it and needed to kind of come up a level. But yeah, I've tracked it all the way through and I made a couple early posts and maybe late March or early April, just sort of the same thing. Like here's the data. And I think it was even in response to some internal bickering between some friends about what was really happening. And I was like, look, here's what I know. And people reacted to it positively. And so I posted a little bit more and people kept reacting to it positively. And so, man, I don't know, how did these things happen? It just became something I do daily. But you gave some narratives early on that I don't see as much of anymore in terms of analysis. You would report out the data, but at some point back in the spring, you were giving some talking points over the data that you were analyzing. And that's kind of what I'm asking for right here now. And again, with all the appropriate disclaimers, don't want anybody getting sued for an appearance on Franchise Today. <laughs> but but I would love to, just like we hear from both sides of the aisle, what they see based on their political points of view, you without the politics, just from the data and its analysis, can you tell us? Yeah, like I won't wait into the, the political side of it. And again, disclaimer, right? Please go get good information <laughs> elsewhere because all I'm doing is pulling it down from a website and compiling it and sharing it back out. But over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've certainly seen a steady decline in transmission. If you look at the states that were on a national basis, I mean, on a, on a state-by-state basis, the, the southern and western states that were part of the really big summer surge have been waning for quite some time. Like Arizona has seen six straight weeks of week over week decline. California has seen five. There might California may have a positive week in there, so there may only be five of six. But Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, the week over week, the case rates are going down. Their daily rates versus their trailing two-week averages have been steadily down. Their rate of transmission down. There are some pockets. You'll see some of the mainstream media outlets on both sides reporting this. Look, the data is the data. We're all getting our data from the same place, right? The New York Times is getting their data from the exact same data aggregator that I am. And so it's just a matter matter how you report it out. Well, I mean, it's like like weather forecasters, John. I mean, they follow models too. And then some say one thing, some say the other. They're doing it from those points of views that they favor, I guess. But, you know, and there's some pockets in, in in the Midwest that are seeing some alarming rates of increase. I think lost in all of this is schools are going back and there's a lot more testing associated with that. And because there's more testing, the more positive case rates. And because there's higher degree of aggregation of students, there's higher trans- actual transmission. That's, that's you know, that you bring, pe- you bring people together from disparate places and put them in a Petri dish environment. There are lots of close contact and you're going to see case rate transmission go up. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I'm not minimizing it, but that's just the way it is. And so you see campuses that are dealing with it and dealing with it positively. But, you know, the next round of this will be as more schools go back here on the East Coast, uh, particularly in the Northeast, our schools aren't back yet. So, but I know in the South and the West and some parts of the Midwest, they are back. So I think this is going to continue to ebb and flow. If you believe 
believe that close internal contact, so contact inside tight spaces, is what drives case rate transmission. No pun intended, the winner is coming. And so we're going to see it continue to ebb and flow. All I can tell you is I'm going to keep track of those cases daily. What are your thoughts on meetings, conferences, conventions, IFAs, almost around the corner, right? What do you forecast? Do you see people getting to a place where we can be comfortable enough to try and think about traditional meetings again anytime soon? I don't know, Stan. I think you've got a couple things, right? You've got the logistics of getting there and being there, which are really uncomfortable and awkward for a lot of people. And then you've got the reality of large groups of people in tight spaces. And I, and then you've got the very real sort of untalked about reality of mitigating litigation and, and mitigating responsibility for organizational transmission. And so I don't know. I don't know what the IFA is going to do. You know, I know our good friends who I've been involved with for a long time who I love, Lane and Brad. I know that they've moved Springboard virtual. I think it's probably the right decision given what's transpired. I hate it because this business is a, you know, the, the business of franchising is so intimate and so personal that I think a lot of, of what we do is lost in, in a distance type event. I think it'll be difficult for these organizations to pull it off. John, you just brought something up that I have to share with the audience. Yesterday, I had a Zoom call with last week's guest on Franchise Today. Gentlemen, I don't know if you know him or not, Dave Paskin. No. I don't know, Dave. So Dave's a recovering franchisor who's now on the supplier side of the business, but he and I are on a Zoom call. And when the video portion of the Zoom call came up, we're both wearing our springboard shirts from a couple of years ago. <laughs> I'm going to post that picture on the Franchise That's Today great. Facebook page. He couldn't make it up. In fact, I need to call Lane and tell him that it was hysterical. His picture came yeah, up okay. before mine, and I saw him wearing the shirt, and I said, Dave, you're going to be creeped out in just a minute when my video goes live. So funny. Comes my picture wearing the same exact shirt. You can't make it up. I am looking forward to the virtual version of Springboard. And I just put a shameless plug in because I think it's one of the best events of the year. So if you're listening to this, if for no other reason than to see how Lane and Brad pull off a virtual event, which I'm sure is going to be just outstanding, you should definitely participate. That is a well-deserved plug, and I'm happy to have given you the space to deliver it. <laughs> John, we're at the place in time where we're kind of running to the end here. What have I not asked you that you wish I might? You know, so it's a big move, right? So I'd love to... If if I can take like just a minute or two and talk about Hand in Stone and Please the do. nature of why I made the decision. Yeah. So the move here was, we said earlier, a little bit about, you know, just sort of getting back closer to the work, but mostly it was about the nature of this organization. For me, it really starts with, I've been a member for nine years and my relationship with Hand in Stone in general, but specifically massage is not a theoretical, I don't do it for relax or whatever. You know, I've got a back issue. It's one of the only things that keeps me really going. So I'm a dyed in the wall, hardcore believer in the in the modality. I've been following the development of Hand in Stone for quite a long time. When John Margo opened his first sheet in Tom's River, Laura and I actually lived less than a mile away. And I can remember looking at it going, my gosh, these guys are, there's something there. You know, Lane does some work with Todd Left and as a friend of Todd Left's. And so through my relationship with Lane, I've had kind of a front row seat to the manner in which they've grown the business. And I'm so impressed with the sort of methodical and consistent nature of the way that they've approached growing this brand. They've grown it the right way through and through. And I got to see this from the outside. As my diligence process started with them and I got to meet the team, I realized that the team here is just phenomenal, right? The degree of technical acumen within each discipline is through the roof. The commitment and passion that this organization has for their franchisees and for the branding and quite honestly for the 
cat for the entire category and industry as sort of demonstrated through the COVID period is outstanding. So an incredible team. I've come to learn now that I've been here about this and the, the revenue model, which is the diversification of the revenue model is, is incredible. It's three primary modalities. It's four revenue channels within each modality. So just a great underlying business. And then to be sort of the, for us, it's a, it's a great place to be because we're, we, we can be that differentiated brand. The other really exciting thing for me is that the technology disruption that's happened in the hospitality industry at first, and then over the course of the last couple of years in the restaurant industry is only just starting, right? So using technology to optimize the relationship with the guest and to create that one-on-one -on -one relationship, using technology to manage inventory in real time, right? The, um, finite and diminishing inventory in real time, you know, technology platforms to manage sort of a disparate workforce that's hourly and fractured and sort of gig-like. That's all just starting in this industry. And so what the company is today and where the company and the industry are going, it's, it's a really, really exciting time to be a part of it. Well, I can't think of a better person than somebody like like you, who's got all of the experience in franchising, all the passion for the technology is yet to come. And the fact that it's going to keep you a little closer to home and out of Newark airports, probably a little icing on the cake <laughs> as well. John, how about some contact info before we let you go? Sure. Cell phone hasn't changed. So anybody who's got that, please feel free to reach out. It's jteza at handinstone.com. And happy to hear from anybody that wants to learn a little bit more about the business from any angle. And Stan, I just, I can't thank you enough for having me on. It's an honor. You were one of my first Sherpas in the industry. I can literally remember Brian Summers and I driving back from a real estate tour in Washington, D.C. and talking to you about your experiences with the founder of Blimpies. And that was where we really began to build our relationship. And so it's an honor to have been on your program. Well, it's an honor to have you. And we'll have you back after you've dived into this new opportunity and gotten closer to the work. As I said earlier, getting your hands back on the clay. We'll come back and talk some more about Hand in Stone and hopefully a whole lot less about COVID-19. Fair enough? Amen. John Tezza, Chief Development Officer and President at Hand in Stone. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Dan. Well, guests are invited here each week because they're anxious to share their stories, journeys, and industry experience with you, dropping nuggets along the way that can be meaningful and impactful as you continue your own journey toward achieving sustainable growth through sensible franchising. Well, John Tezza clearly did that for us today. Next week, Peter Daly-Dixon joins us to discuss the aforementioned book, Franchising Freedom. Peter will provide insights into what this book's 15 contributing authors have laid out, which in the forward I describe as being a common sense tool to help readers navigate their journeys toward franchise ownership. Until then, please keep doing the best that you can to keep yourselves and those you love and care about safe and keep praying for things to continue improving and for our lives to continue tracking positive each and every day. Until next week, I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.